Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Hello, everyone. So, Professor Sakata mentioned in his talk that soul for Descartes means mind. Okay. And so, what I want to talk about today is why that is the case. And the way that that came about was that Descartes argued against the scholastics that soul doesn't, doesn't do anything biologically. So the preceding scholastic conception was that we need soul in order to account for the biological life of an organism. And that position in philosophy is called vitalism. So Descartes rejected that. He rejected the thesis of vitalism. And this paper is about whether that argument of his is successful or not. Okay. So this, is, uh, this outline is a summary of an article that I've already published. So if you flip over onto the second page, the last bullet point, the final two lines, you'll see the actual title of the article that's published. So if you want to actually read the article, you just need to Google the title and it will pull it up. It's actually on my website, my Boston College faculty website. You can just download it for free from there. So first I'll read the abstract and then we'll, I'll just talk through the outline in a leisurely way. Descartes' arguments that the body can be considered a self-propelled machine rely on a misuse of the Aristotelian concept of self-motion. His arguments fail to establish what he intended them to because whereas Aristotle meant the capacity for self-induced alteration, which is qualitative motion, Descartes interpreted self-motion as a reference to the local motions of the constitutive parts of a body. Owing to his, this misinterpretation, Descartes never actually addressed the Aristotelian theory. And so his physics leaves unresolved a problem that Aristotle is able to solve by positing the soul as the life of the body. Namely, why do some things metabolize, but others do not? So the claim is that Descartes commits the fallacy of the straw man, the straw man fallacy. He sets up an argument which he claims is Aristotle's argument, and then he attacks that argument, but he doesn't understand the origi original position, the original Aristotelian argument. So his, encounter, his entire counter-argument fails to address the issue. So we're going to start off in section one talking about how Descartes learned Aristotelianism. So, you know, we, when we think about studying Aristotle, we think of reading a whole text. You know, you go to the bookstore and you get your copy of On the Soul by Aristotle. But in Descartes' education, that's not the method that was used. So they used handbooks compiled by, you know, experts. So the handbooks that he was taught were by the Jesuits, and he went to a college called La Fleche in France. And we still have these handbooks, so it's possible to look and see exactly what he was taught, exactly what he read. So the Conimbrachenses, the Coimbra Jesuits, Coimbra in, in Portugal, and Toledus, who was a Spanish Jesuit, published these 
manuals of Aristotelian philosophy for the Ratio Studiorum, which was the curriculum that the Jesuits made famous that was basically entirely Aristotle. Okay, And so this is what Descartes is reacting against when Professor Saccato is talking about him being in dialogue with scholasticism, but also reacting against it. He was reacting against this education he had at the Collège in, in France. So these texts were published in 1572, 1592, and 1602. All right, so when we look at these, we can see what exactly he was taught about life and what it means to be alive. So the definition of life, which is paraphrased from Aristotle Physics 8.4, is self-motion or the capacity for self-motion. To move oneself immediately and as the principal cause of one's own motion is the proper office of life. That to which it is intrinsic to itself to be moved by itself is alive. So the contrast here is obviously with being moved from outside yourself, right? So if a rock is eroded by the rain falling on it, or if it's faded by the sun shining on it, it's being changed, but it's being changed from the outside. So life is defined as an intrinsic self-change, the ability to change yourself from the inside. So Toledus, the text of Toledus is similar. To live is nothing other than a certain self-motion and movement of one's own is a kind of life. And all things which by some motion move on account of themselves and by an essential principle live. Life consists in this, that something essentially has an active principle of some motion within itself. So Aristotle and Aristotelians called the active principle of life the soul, the suke in Greek or the anima. So when Professor Sakata was saying earlier, Descartes thinks that anima is the same as mens, right? The reason is that he inherits this conception of anima, of which soul, of which mens or mind was one power, and effectively he vacuums out the other powers. And so what you're left with is just the mind. The mental power is the only thing remaining of this scholastic conception of soul. So there are three types of soul in Aristotle, all right? And I'm sure some of you know this very well and maybe others don't know it at all. So I'm just gonna briefly touch upon those three types. So according to Aristotle, anything that's alive has a soul. So if you're a bacterium, you have a soul. If you're an algae, you have a soul. If you're a plant, you have a soul. If you're an animal, you have a soul. If you're a human, you have a soul. But there's three basic types, okay? So the first type is called vegetative. And this is a kind of soul that single cell organisms have and plants have. And the only thing that they can cause in the organism is self-nutrition in Aristotle's language, but we would say metabolism, respiration, digestion, the processes of metabolism. So keeping oneself alive by assimilating nutrients from the outside. The second type of soul is the entire animal kingdom. So in order to have this kind of soul, you have to have sensation because what this soul does, the sensate soul, is that it causes your metabolism and it also enables you to be sensorily aware of data that you take in through your senses. And then, of course, there's a hierarchy within the animal kingdom because some animals have only one sense, the sense of touch, and other animals have five senses, and then you have everything in between, okay? And then the third type of soul is the human soul, so according to Aristotle, the human soul does 
three functions. This is a this is a hierarchy of super eminence. This these three types of souls. So your human soul causes the metabolism of your body. It enables you to be conscious or sensorily aware of data taken in through your senses, and it enables you to think. Okay. So of these three types of soul, only one is immortal, and that's the human soul. So the thesis is that the animal souls and the plant souls, when the animal or plant dies, its soul just dissolves, poofs out of existence. It has, it has no independent existence apart from the body. It exists in relation to bodily processes. And so when the body starts to decompose, the soul no longer subsists or has reality. Okay. All right. So that's what Descartes inherited. And he inherited it in these formulas that we've just seen in the first three um, bullet points. So it's clear from Descartes' writings that he knows this definition of life. So he says, for example, in Meditation 2, it occurred to me that I took in food, that I walked about, and that I sensed and thought various things. You can see he's going through that hierarchy of three kinds of souls, right? Um, and he's saying, my one soul, my human rational soul, was what was causing me to nurture myself, is what was causing me to sense things, and it was also causing me to be able to think things. These actions I used to attribute to the soul, for it was my view back then that the power of self-motion and likewise of sensing and thinking in no way belonged to the nature of the body. So he's just telling us this is what I was taught by the Jesuits, okay? And it's, it's Aristotle. Now, Descartes shifts away from this position, right? Away from the vitalist position. And he argues against the claim that life requires a soul, as I said at the outset. So the way that he argues is he retains the Aristotelian definition of life. So he does not dispute that the definition of life is capacity for self-motion. But he interprets the word motion in this definition to mean local motion or change of position. And this is going to become problematic because there's four possible meanings of motion in Aristotle. Okay, so he thinks he has the correct meaning and that it's local motion. Okay, so he gives basically two different arguments in various texts. So the first argument is the Aristotelians believe that the changing positions of organs and fluids in the body are mysterious. So he talks about the opening and closing of the heart. When I say change of position of an organ, that's what I mean. I don't mean the whole organ is sliding around somewhere. But the organ is expanding and contracting the heart. Um, and then he talks about the blood is locally moving from the head down to the chest and from the chest up to the head, you know, circulation. Okay. So the Aristotelians think that these changes in the body are mysterious and we need to invoke the existence of soul in order to explain why they happen. But Descartes says, contemporary mechanics have dispelled any such mystique. Therefore, vegetative soul is an unnecessary hypothesis. We don't need to invoke soul to explain why the body is alive, why it's doing life functions of metabolism. So that's his first argument. It, require, it relies on the notion of local motion of parts of the body. Second argument is about you know, at its core, if you reduce life down, what is it? Well, he says it's heat. Life is heat. And heat is the local motion of 
very tiny particles or molecules. So Gassendi uses the term molecule. He's, he's in conversation with Descartes. By inertia, having been set in motion by God when he created matter. Therefore, heat requires no cause outside of itself. And therefore, it is an error to believe that the soul imparts motion and heat to the body. So if you notice, he's defined molecules as self-moving, okay, self-motion, because he's, he thinks he's addressing Aristotle. Aristotle says, we have to invoke soul to explain self-motion. And then he, Descartes says, look, molecules are self-moving, but I'll, t I'll tell you the reason why. It's not because of the soul. It's because God set everything in motion initially at creation, and by inertia, these molecules are bouncing around, bumping into each other, moving. Okay, so there's a very important implication of this argument, of course, which is that artifacts have self-motion. And he says this explicitly, clocks, artificial fountains, mills, and other such things are not without the power of self-motion. There is no difference between the internal motions of automata and live bodies. So you might hear people saying sometimes Descartes thinks the body is a machine. Okay, this is what they're talking about. All right, so let's, in section two, look at Aristotle's actual position. So we're going to go back behind the Conibrichenses text and the Toledus text that Descartes would have been taught and just look at Aristotle on his own terms. So the key issue, obviously, is what does motion mean? Right. Um, and motion in classical Greek has multiple senses. The word really just means change. And the word is kinesis, as you see in parentheses. So Aristotle enumerates four different kinds of kinesis in the physics. The first of which is change of location. Obviously, in English, when we say motion, that's the first thing that we think of. We think of local motion. But it could also mean a change of state a qualitative change, and that's called a motion, okay, a qualitative motion. So qualities, those of you who've done Aristotle's categories, you know that qualities is an enormous category of types of characteristics. So color is a quality, right? So, you know, if I, if the, if I put the chair in front of the window and the sun fades it from being every, day after day in the window, the chair is faded, that is called motion. Okay, it's a qualitative motion. It's a change of color. If you are a vicious person and you become virtuous, that's a qualitative motion. It's a change of quality in your soul. If your hair changes color, it's a qualitative motion. Okay, so a very wide category of motions that we don't normally associate with the term motion in English. A third type of change or motion is coming into or passing out of existence. So we call this substantial change in philosophy. This is generation and destruction of something, right? So if I destroy the chair, that's called a substantial change or a motion into non-existence. Or when something is fertilized and becomes, you know, a new instance of that species, if you have fertilization or when something dies, those are substantial changes. And then the fourth type is, Diminishing or increasing in overall size, quantitative motion. So if you gain weight, that's called motion. Okay, it's a quantitative motion. If you lose weight, that's quantitative motion. The growth process from the time that you're a baby all the way up to the time you're an adult is motion, quantitative motion. Okay, so 
Aristotle says self-motion is the distinctive characteristic of living things. He says this multiple times earlier in the physics, um, sorry, later in the physics, and also in the On the Soul, the text On the Soul. Now, the question obviously is which meaning of motion does he have in mind when he says that? And the key point is that he identifies life with self-nutrition, okay? The basic characteristic that all living things have is self-nutrition. Obviously, if we use updated language to say self-nutrition, it would be metabolism, as I mentioned before. So the claim is everything that's alive metabolizes, aka engages in self-motion. And... You know, you can see this because he interchanges. Sometimes he gives lists of um, different life functions. So we'll say like self-motion, the ability to move from place to place, the ability to sense, the, the ability to desire or feel pleasure and pain. And then he will list types of changes in parallel. Okay. And so the type of change that's in parallel with self-nutrition is alteration or change of quality. Okay. So we're talking about a qualitative change for Aristotle when we say life is self-motion. That's the fundamental meaning. So life is self-motion means life is self-induced alteration in the form of self-nutrition because self-nutrition is a kind of qualitative change. And you can see that this makes a lot of sense um, because if you think about what metabolism is, what digestion is, your body changes the constitution of your tissues, right? It, it changes. You go from being potassium poorer to being potassium richer when you eat a banana, right? So your, your tissue is changed qualitatively by the process of, of assimilation of nutrients from outside. Sometimes people are ten, they're tempted to think it must be quantitative change because if you eat a banana, your mass increases by the amount of the banana, right? But um, that's actually not true because, like, think of a single cell organism. It's taking in food, whatever its food is, right? It's taking in some nutriment, but it's also excreting at the same time. So you have net zero, right? And that's perfectly possible. It probably happens in nature all the time. So while it is true that if you assimilate a lot of food and don't excrete the same amount, you will have a quantitative change. That's a result of the process of metabolism, okay? So the core idea of self-motion is just the metabolic process, which is a qualitative change. All right. Um, and, you know, this is perfectly modern to say this because if you look at a biology textbook, what's the definition of life? All living things metabolize, okay? So that really hasn't fundamentally changed. And Aristotle had the insight to see that that was the case. And that's what this definition, life is self-motion, really captures. All right, so what does this tell us about poor Descartes? Poor Descartes is probably, he's doing the best he can to argue against the Aristotelians, but he's got a fundamental misunderstanding about the meaning of the word motion in Aristotle. Because his argument, as we saw on the bottom of the first page, is all based on the supposition that what Aristotle was talking about was local motion of parts of the body or the locomotion of molecules. And that is not even the topic of Aristotle's self-motion when he's talking about life. So 
um, he's attacking a straw man, right? This, this fails by the fallacy of the straw man. Now, if we were to point this out to Descartes, he presumably would not just back down and say, okay, yes, I was wrong. Um, so he would try to defend himself. Um, and so I was thinking, what would he say? Right? Well, he would probably say, okay, fine, I got the wrong sense of motion, but you know, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Because metabolism is reducible to local motion. You know, so I'm just going to say that metabolism is no different from locomotion. It's not actually a qualitative change as a different kind of thing from locomotion. It's just the movement of the molecules. Um, you know, like the molecules of potassium are, are in the banana and then they're in you. That's all it is. Okay. But um, this is just not true, I think. Right? So if we imagine an experiment, so we can actually induce rapid locomotion of particles in a rock or in an automaton in a machine by putting in the microwave, microwaving it. And it doesn't start to metabolize when we do that, right? So just because I create a lot of friction by moving the molecules in something doesn't mean it's alive and it doesn't turn it into something that's alive. So they are not the same thing, okay? So because he's attacked a straw man, he really has no answer then for this question. Why do some things metabolize, but other things do not metabolize, okay? And this is a major vacuum in his physics. All right, so third section, what can we conclude about why this happened, you know? I don't think that Descartes set out to intentionally mislead people or use the wrong sense of motion, okay? So what, what actually happened? Um, if you look at these handbooks that he was taught from, the Conibrichensis and the Toledus handbooks, they simply repeat Aristotle and they don't synthesize Aristotle's various statements. So when they're, when they're talking about biology and they're summarizing Aristotle's claim that life requires soul, and life is self-motion, they don't tell you right there what motion means in that sentence. So you have to know that in a different book, the physics, there's these four different meanings of motion. And you have to read, you know, throughout eight um, and see this like listing of various types of change alongside various kinds of life functions and see the correlation and figure out which sense of motion self-nutrition is, okay? So they don't do that. They don't do that work for you. So then that means that it's, the onus is then on the teacher, right? The teacher who's got this textbook effectively, which is the, the Coimbra Jesuits manual, is going to have to tell the students, okay? But we have evidence that in Europe at this time, the level of pedagogy was pretty low, specifically with regard to Aristotle. So you can kind of see from the way that Aristotle, excuse me, way, the way that Descartes talks, and specifically when he's talking to his friends, his interlocutors in his letters, that he's just been taught like a transliterated French understanding of a Latin word. So the, the Greek word is kinesis, and that was translated as motus all the way back in antiquity. But if you translate motus from Latin into French, into modern French, you get mouvement. But mouvement in the modern French has the connotation of local movement, 
Okay. So if you have a teacher who has a Latin textbook, which is what these Conobrigensis and Toledo's handbooks are, they're in Latin, the teacher is telling you, you know, life is self-motus, life is self-movement. You see the, how the transition occurs, right, to where you just assume that it means local, local motion. Okay, and then I did some reading around in other authors of that time period to see is Descartes the only one who made this kind of mistake or did his interlocutors also make this mistake? And if they did, is this representative of a general problem in Europe? And the answer is yes. Okay. So, you know, we have, we have a record of complaints that in this early modern period, everyone was claiming that they understood Aristotle and that they were Aristotelians, but they had a very surface level understanding and they were just kind of repeating formulas. And I looked at all of the people who wanted to argue against Descartes about the soul, about this thesis, okay, the rejection of vitalism. And I, I looked to see, did anyone catch this mistake that he made? And the answer is no, they all missed it because none of them had a better understanding than Descartes himself did of what the original meaning was in Aristotle. And this is just reflective, I think, of the educational system in Europe at the time and you know, the, the level that the teachers had, essentially. So I didn't write it all out here, but all of the examples are in this article. So I looked at Cassendi and Marsan, and Professor Scott had talked about these people, Bordon, Henry Moore, and Fromandus. And I, I didn't find anyone who caught this mistake. So it's an interesting thing that happens in the history of philosophy, and it means that really there is no valid argument against vitalism that happens in the history of philosophy because subsequent to Descartes, people just kind of take it as a given that this ghost in the machine idea of soul that we get from Aristotle is unnecessary, okay? And we can just, we can just toss it aside and that the soul is just the mind. So that's all I wanted to say. Um, maybe we can have discussion. Professor Byers, thank you for this talk. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about your reply to the Cartesian response, because as I'm reading you here, you're saying that observation shows that it can't just be local motion doing digestion, because take a rock, put it in a microwave, things start moving really quickly. Obviously, digestion isn't occurring. But right. so are you reading Descartes as saying there's only one kind of local motion, namely just things moving really quickly, right? Because in there's only one kind. Okay. Well, because so, for instance, like in the human digestive system, right, you've got acid breaking things apart. You have, well, I guess I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about this reply. Maybe you could help me. Well, are you asking really about Descartes? I mean, because he didn't know everything that we know. About sure. The yeah, I'm asking about digestion, right? Do you read Descartes as only having as saying that all there is in local motion is the speed with which things are moving, and there's no other factors that might be able to account for what's going on in digestion? Well, there's no other kind of change happening. So, everything that we describe as a qualitative change or as a quantitative change is really just reducible down to local motion. So, there's really only that kind that's relevant for talking about life. And then if you reduce down even to a smaller level and look at like the molecules or the small parts, particles of things, they're moving locally. 
and they have self-motion. They just move without any kind of impetus. So it's a question about, you know, do you need an efficient cause to account for metabolism as a kind of a kickstart to an initiator of metabolic processes? Or can you just say what we call metabolic processes is just the local motion of parts or particles? That's that helpful. Help? Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. I'm I'm interested in in kind of what this says about how we do philosophy. Um, and Descartes kind of a, a good example for that because he he veered away from kind of the institutional context in which philosophy had been done primarily by the scholastics and um, you know in in his his very different way of doing uh, philosophy through meditations. I, I just wonder about, um, he doesn't seem to know Aristotle really well. Um, he doesn't seem to be aware that Aristotle was actually, when he was talking about the soul, was actually specifically countering. I think it was Thales who, who said that magnets have a soul. Uh -huh. and, and Aristotle specifically mentioned that and, and was talking about how that's, that's not the way to think about the soul uh -huh. and gave a different version of that. So uh -huh. it, I, I wonder about um, whether, w whether you think if Aristotle had been in an, say an inst more of an institutional scholastic context um, and had more discursive, more uh, discussion uh -huh. uh, philosophically with his peers whether this mistake would have been made at that time. I mean, it sounds like maybe it's questionable because of the, the level of, of education at the time, um, but whether that reflects a little bit on the situation that we're in now, where if you go to a public or private university, for the most part, you're missing an awful lot of understanding of uh, St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I, I just was wondering if you had any comments on that. Yeah, so one thing that I have thought about is the problem with Descartes' own education, because, I mean, he went to college, but that is not the same as a full university education in philosophy or doing a PhD in philosophy. So he did the college, and then he studied law, and then he traveled with the military for a couple of years, and that was it, you know. So um, I think, you know, had he become a Jesuit and spent decades talking to older Jesuits, younger Jesuits, you know, people who studied philosophy and taught philosophy for a living, it's a much higher chance that somebody would have pointed out to him, you know, oh, well, look at this conversation in the physics, and maybe you've got the wrong sense. Um, you know, his interlocutors, for the most part, are lay people. There's one cleric, but um, so partly it has to do with the levels of education attained by clerics at that time, as opposed to lay people. And the fact that he was basically in a lay world. And um, so, yeah, certainly. But I mean, there is a little bit, I think, of an attitude in Descartes, too, that like, I don't need any more systematic education, right? Like, you all have failed to impress me with this ratio studiorum. So I'm just going to go travel around the world with the military and hope I learn things that way, kind of a thing. Um, at least in the discourse on method, that's what comes across, right? So part of it is openness to new information, openness to more education, you know, it's a bit absurd at 20 years old to say, that's enough formal education for me, I've learned everything I need to learn and um, I'm not impressed, so I'm gonna make my own system now. Um, so I think it's a combination of factors, but I think certainly you're right, if he had been in an, if he had been in an academic department, 
with people who knew Aristotle very well, it, it probably maybe would have turned out differently. But there is this widespread problem about the way education is taking place of, you know, reading these handbooks and not doing this kind of synthetic overarching comparison of texts, different texts of Aristotle. Yes. I, um, I really like the thesis that Descartes tries but fails to refute vitalism mm -hmm. and the idea of the manuals being an insufficient way of teaching Aristotle or any philosophy also makes a lot of sense to me. But I was wondering what you thought about a different proposal for why Descartes makes this mistake. Because the position that the only real kind of change in the world is local motion doesn't seem, it's not original to Descartes. I think that this is one of the things that Aristotle's clearly um, innovating on and saying, criticizing in Democritus and Anaxagoras and Pedocles. It seems like a philosophical position that's existed throughout time. We don't want, we don't think there are substantial forms. We don't think there are qualities. We're just gonna analyze everything in terms of change of place. So in, what about in terms of, what about Descartes makes this mistake deliberately through a philosophical choice that change is all local motion rather than a linguistic or kind of a pedagogical mistake? Um, well, if that's the case, I don't think he would try to argue against Aristotle the way he does. You know, in, at the bottom of the first page, he clearly, he's trying to retain the thesis that life is self-motion, right? But then radically restricts the meaning of motion. But if he if he knew that Aristotle held something different, he wouldn't argue that way because it's, he's trying to catch Aristotle out, you know, by using his premises and just saying, "Look, we have this new evidence about how motion actually occurs. It occurs according to the laws of mechanics." But Aristotle didn't know the laws of mechanics because, you know, he was ignorant back in the Dark Ages. So. Um, the, that form of argument presupposes that he thinks he has the correct sense of motion, the way that Aristotle intended it. I think when you're thinking of Aristotle, you know, responding to the pre-Socratics, you're thinking about material cause. I mean, that's a, really the thesis that Aristotle attacks in the pre-Socratics, that they, they think the only kind of cause there is is material cause, not formal cause, et cetera. Um, because like the, the notion of qualitative change or quality, that's already in Plato, you know, talking about aloeosis and um, distinguishing different types of changes. That's in the Theaetetus. And then Aristotle actually kind of just articulates that more explicitly. Yeah. So I think I'm just going to, I think this is just the same question that Robert asked first. Okay. Um, so, like, I'm with you all the way through. That's super interesting about the how he misunderstood what uh, self motion was, but I still think if 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 uh, as I understand Descartes, if you'd said you know it's not just it's not local motion here, it's metabolism. You try and figure out what that is. I feel like the wouldn't Descartes just take a mechanistic view of metabolism and say it's a species of local motion? Right, but the point is that the evidence is against that. I mean, he says that, but that's empirically wrong. I mean, because if you if you reproduce the local motions that he says metabolism is reducible to, you don't get metabolism. Well, 
I was, I mean, I get, you know, we're a little bit, it's a little hypothetical at this point, right? Because we're like, what if he knew it was metabolism and, and then he tries to give a mechanistic account of that. And my thought was that you're right. He wouldn't think that if you can heat up the innards of a rock, you get metabolism. So it's a, it's, it's a species of locomotion. It's got a mechanistic account and it's not reducible to locomotion on the interior of an object. It has to do something else. I feel like, like, and then the vitalist is going to say, once you've narrowed all that down, it can't be understood mechanistically. Um, and I guess maybe, you know, maybe I'm just agreeing today. Cart didn't tell us why it could, but I, I still don't, I still don't see why he wouldn't say, yes, it could, because that just seems to be his approach to all of this stuff. Well, he, he does say that that's what it is, right? He so says it's any sort of local motion on the interior of an object? He says it's the, the motion of the molecules in the object. Okay. Creating heat, and then heat is life. And then, okay. then that accounts for the opening and closing of the heart and the movement okay, of the sorry. blood. Yeah, okay. So okay, it's, now, it's now, local I, motion now I understand the, the rock around. example better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, Descartes recognizes that there are gaps in what he can account mechanistically, but that doesn't lead him to abandon mechanicism. It just leads him to think he should think harder about it, namely reproduction. And he explicitly says that, that he can't really understand fully what's going on in reproduction and growth and the form of the fetus and so on. He writes about that. So, so I'm, th that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, has to do with, okay, so you're giving us an example, but it's an example to which neither Descartes nor anybody around him had, a, uh, had access. So mm -hmm. can you provide examples that would take into account that he might have said, look, it's not just motion. It's motion, size, and figure. Mm -hmm. So when differently figured particles of different size interact, they produce different things. And, you know, and if a particle has hooks, they tend to get together, if they don't, they bounce off. I mean, mm -hmm. now, it might be that the phenomenon of metabolism is very difficult to explain, but in principle, what it isn't, you know, it's not just a reduction to motion. I mean, it's motion of differently shaped particles that can interact in different ways, mm -hmm. even though they might move in the same way mm -hmm. because of their shape and size and so on. So there might be, in other words, what's stopping the Cartesian from saying, Okay, forget about contemporary knowledge that nobody then could have had. At that time, uh, you know, you could say, well, maybe I'm not able to explain it just easily, but there's, you know, a more complicated thing having to do with this complicated. Uh, so what about that? And, uh, okay. I mean, the, an, an experiment that he could do would be to take a body that had just died, a very fresh corpse. So it has all the right shaped molecules in it, right? Some are hooked, some are whatever, different sizes, shapes. Shake it up, shake it up really, really hard. Get the molecules moving again. That should kickstart metabolism, according to his account of what causes metabolism or what it is, right? It's just the motions locally of the particles, okay? So I think he just fundamentally misses the point. 
there's well, there's one more uh, follow-up on this. Okay. Sure. Uh, can you connect this to a discovery he makes early on in his life? Namely, all these Aristotelians are saying curves are qualities. Saying what? Curves, curves are qualities. Curves are qualities. Uh-huh. That shapes cannot be reduced to quantity. They're wrong. Yeah, it's a figure. Okay. Of, yeah. Okay. Now, he finds a new place for qualities, which is in the mind. Uh-huh. So, he wants to say, look, th- there's a principled reason why we need to find things in the order of size, shape, and movement and be mechanists. Mm-hmm. That, that is the only comprehensible uh, line to take here. Uh, once we know that we can treat any shape in quantitative terms, then whatever is out there is quantitative. We don't need any qualities. So whatever you have a qualitative change, it really is a change in the extended thing that I've now discovered can account for what you think are qualities, just purely extensionally. I mean, that's what he thinks he's done with the geometry. And and that gives him a huge impulse against the Aristotelians. Okay, I mean, that's a whole separate argument that doesn't have anything to do with life. But um, I mean, the difficulty would be you can have various objects of vastly different sizes that have the same figure or shape. Right, so um, they are qualitatively the same, but quantitatively very different. That would be that would be the difficulty for him to explain what's going on then, in that kind of a case. I'm not sure. If they're I the same, I don't want to, want to press it. Uh-huh. I understand why you're saying that quality depends on a body being extended, right? The figure, the shape of something depends on being in it in an extended body, but that's true of many different accidents, right? So. The mere fact that one type of accident presupposes physicality or another type of disposition of a physical thing, in other words, another kind of category of accident, that in itself doesn't show that they're the same or reducible to one another. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Byers, for a really a superb talk, which I very much enjoyed. Um, I have a question coming at this from a different angle than we've been talking about, which is really more Aristotle. Last um, semester, we had a Thomistic circles in this very uh, room on the search for life in the cosmos, and we had um, some biologists as well as astronomers and philosophers talking about this question. And in the context of it, the definition of life came up. Uh, and Christopher Frey, who's a philosopher uh, at the University of, or recently at the University of uh, South Carolina, I think he's moving now, um, gave a paper on. Aristotle on the impossibility of defining life. Uh, and he, manif- he he claimed to go through these Aristotelian texts and show that according to Aristotle, life cannot be given a, def- a univocal definition. Different life forms. Um, I think his, his point was that life is said in different ways of different oh, well, things. That's true. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you can't just have a definition of life. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, if that raises the maybe a further, I don't know, gives a different angle on the question that we're looking at here. Like perhaps metabolism is a good way to describe um, life in some respects, but not in every respect. I mean, if you're a Thomist and you're asking, does God have life? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Obviously no metabolism. Mm -hmm. Um, And what does that require us then to say about life? Maybe that isn't really helpful for talking about Descartes. Um, Mm -hmm. But I wondered if that, what you thought about the, I mean, these supposedly Aristotelian definitions right. of life um, and whether they're faithful to Aristotle or whether the, c- the question maybe is complex in a different way. 
Well, I didn't hear that paper, so I don't know exactly what his thesis was, but it seems to me that it's mixing two different claims. I mean, it's certainly true that there are different life functions that living things have. So metabolism is just the most basic life function that everything has. But um, sensation is a kind of life in the sense that it's a specific type of life function that's not the same life function as metabolism. And then you have the life of the mind, which Aristotle says is the highest kind of life, right? It's, it's an activity that's self-induced, not brought in from the outside, but it's a noetic activity. It's intellectual. So that in that sense, it's true that there's just different life functions, right? That are, they're not necessarily all, um, involving metabolism, right? Um, directly at least. And if you're talking about intellectual life, that's the mind is immaterial. So you don't need a body at all ultimately for that. But I, I do think it's true to say that they're all self-induced activity. I mean, the definition of life as the capacity for self-induced activity seems to me is true of all of those different types of um, ways of living, right? So the only way it's not true of God to say self-motion is that motion implies a transition from first actuality to second, right? And so since God doesn't change, it doesn't have that. But he's doing an activity of his own accord without any kind of even occasional cause from the outside. So I guess I don't find it so so difficult to take take both things. There is this common denominator that all cases of life functions have, which is self-induced activity, but then there's definitely different kinds of life functions that different kinds of beings have. Yes, Father Bonaventure. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Father Cuddy. So this is a fascinating paper, and uh, I, my question is about the philosophical project of Descartes and whether or not that is it is specifically different from that of Aristotle, or for lack of a better word, from the classical tradition. And I, I ask because what we see here uh, is the convergence of two principles that have a come together, namely a rejection of Aristotle through a misunderstanding, and then in meditation to his own reflection on his experience. Mm -hmm. And now he concludes thus, and yet, with your very helpful response, you're like, even with that, experience shows that this is not the case. So my question then is, is Descartes doing something different insofar as he's looking at philosophy first, like Aristotle, reacting to them with another eye, one eye also on experience, when it would seem like Aristotle, he would look at the pre-Socratics, Plato, the Stoics, but he's primarily looking at reality. So in other words, has, do you sense that Descartes has made philosophy moving it up almost to a second order discourse where now the actual positions of philosophers exercise regnative direction even in his conclusions about his own experience and about the reality that he encounters? Exercise what direction? Regnative, like directive. This becomes oh. a factor. Because it would seem like with, even without Aristotle, he should be, this misunderstanding, he should be able to see, as per your example, uh -huh. this is not the case. Right. So you're, you're asking whether his conclusion is, is driven partly as just a kind of rebellion against Aristotle. Or if he's taking, the philosopher, or if he's taking philosophers 
as a more uh, formal, informing role in his own philosophical development. Like this is part of his essential project. Because Aristotle was just like, let's look at these positions, but I'm all ultimately going to come back to what, I, we're going to start ends mobile and move up. Right. Does that make, do you see what I'm saying? Perhaps. I think so. I so mean, I, yeah. I guess I interpret him in all the readings that I did as, as in a way, I mean, being, being less concerned with, almost being less concerned with getting to the truth of the matter than being concerned with developing a mental skill or doing exercises, right? And in some ways, this is what you see kind of in what we call analytic philosophy now. There's so much emphasis on skill and just like, can you think, prove to me that you can come up with a beautiful thought experiment or a beautiful proof, right? But all at the level of a priori thinking um, rather than the fundamental thing is not to be wrong and corresponding to reality, right? Um, I do think that is, yeah, that is a real distinction that you see between pre-modern and modern philosophers. And um, I, yeah, that's plausible to me that he, he represents that shift. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Byers. Um, my question is about, uh, again, these kind of four definitions of, of motion and, and uh, local motion in particular. So in, in book four of the physics, Aristotle says that um, locomotion is the most general and primary sense of motion. Okay. And I'm looking at Aquinas's commentary where he credits this to Aristotle talking about the motion of the local motion of the heavenly bodies mm -hmm. as directing all things. Um, so everything is in some sense reduced to locomotion in this way, um, or so it seems. Um, and I'm, I'm just going off of this. Um, is, there, uh, is there a way that throws a wrench at all into the way the different types of motion seem to affect life um, because now it seems that maybe things are uh, reduced to local motion or, or how can we just make a distinction there um, so that we can understand that better or combat someone who might uh, present that as a said contra to your point. Right. Um, I mean, so I don't think Aristotle holds that the, the local motion of the heavenly bodies means that all the other kinds of motion are reducible to local motion. It just means that the local motion of the heavenly bodies create the necessary material conditions on earth for, you know, metabolism to be able to be carried out, right? So it's a question of um, material causality and necessary conditions rather than all kinds of motion really being only one type. Thank you very much. Is this, we're good? Yes. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think the thing that stood out to me most was more actually what's going on in the manuals okay. and the translation issue. And I guess my question is, uh, do you think the bigger, what's the bigger problem, the translation issues or the fact that in the manual teaching at the time, it seems like they totally missed out on the apparatic aspect of Aristotle's thought that you know, Descartes might have been a little self-correct had he actually remembered that in all these definitions, Aristotle's responding to the problem, why do some things metabolize and mm -hmm. others not? And so I guess it's more just a historical question, having looked at these, like how does that aphoretic dimension, seems like it totally drops out. Right. And if you can just maybe comment a little bit on that, if you... So, I mean, in defense of the conimbrachenses and Toledus, I think part of the reason why they stick to you know, motus, which is the, the translation of kinesis in antiquity, right? I mean, you see that like at the turn of the era. 
I think the reason they stick to that is because, you know, they're they're also trying to put their students in conversation with medieval scholasticism. And so in medieval scholasticism, kinesis is still being called motus. So they want them to be able to go and read, you know, Aquinas or someone in Latin and see motus and basically recognize that word. Okay. So um I think that's the motivation behind it is to use traditional Latin terminology. But the the difficulty of with that is it does put all the onus on the teacher. And one thing that's kind of interesting historically is to think about the Jesuit order at this time, right? Because it's very young. And you think about who was teaching Descartes these texts. And it was probably like Jesuit scholastics, right? Who maybe were the equivalent of graduate students, some of them. Okay. So they're not necessarily experts who've been poring over um, all the texts of Aristotle or even all of the handbooks on different topics for decades, right? So that's uh, that's another interesting thing to think about, the problem of having TAs teach classes. <laughs> well, thank you, Professor Byers. My question is, how does this understanding of life as fundamentally self-motion affect the Thomistic proof drawn from Aristotle and Plato for the immortality of the soul? Because their understanding seems to be that um, death is fundamentally breaking down into parts. And an immaterial being can't do that because it is simple. So if death is actually a ceasing of self-motion, is there something intrinsic to immaterial beings that means they have to always um, possess this ability for self-motion? Otherwise, it seems like that proof for the immortality of the soul breaks down in a way if we change that meaning of life. I'm not sure I fully got the import of your question, but... I mean, certainly the in the handbooks, when they give the de definition of life, they cite the Phaedrus passage, or the Phaedo passage. Um, but also, it's also in the Phaedrus. Um, I think they cite the Phaedrus, but it's the same point, right? Which is that it's kind of like the soul is essentially alive. It's essentially self-induced in its activities. Um, so I think that's related to your question. I'm not sure that I fully understood the end of your question. So did I address what you were actually trying to get at? Uh, my question was, if death is a ceasing of self-motion rather than a breaking down into parts? Um, well, it's the ceasing of metabolic activities in the body. But I mean, the body for Aristotle does not set up its own life functions. It receives the impetus for those from the soul. So the body breaks down, but the soul is, the, is essentially alive. And so then you just have separation of soul and body. Unless you're an animal soul and a plant or a plant soul, and then you dissolve. And that that he doesn't necessarily have a great explanation for. I mean, he says, like, well, it's intrinsically connected to the body and bodily organs because its activities are carried out through bodily organs. Um, but, you know, there's another line of thinking, which is the platonic line of thinking, which is that, you know, even animal and plant souls are, you know, alive in their own right and not so dependent on the body that they couldn't possibly survive death. I mean, it's not a popular position. OK, but I'm just saying it gets a bit mysterious when you get into the question of like, 
what exactly happens at death and how when you're talking about an immaterial cause of material processes. Yeah, that's that answers my question. Is okay for that? Okay, great. Um, you can pass on this one, go to the other one if you don't want to do metabolism again. Um, but I would have thought that um, it, you say, so the misunderstanding of life not being metabolism, but self-motion, uh, and you know modern biology actually kind of agrees with Aristotle that life is metabolism. It's been a while since I've read modern biology textbooks, I admit, but like I would be shocked if that if modern biology textbooks said and therefore vitalism is true or no, yeah, like yeah. nutritive soul is true i would have yeah, thought yeah. actually that this would have been an awesome point to help out descartes you could say like i know you don't have a good explanation for this sort of you know metabolism under mechanism and therefore your argument doesn't work but actually in about 300 years you're going to have a great argument because metabolism according to modern biology is just energy transfer exchange that's not like a microwave shaking stuff it's a lot of atoms and chemical reactions which are due to physical blah 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 we can do the reductionist project uh -huh. so i would have thought that like actually the modern biology textbook gives descartes help to say metabolism can be reduced to locomotion we don't know what else it would be and therefore like you're good bro yeah i agree no. <laughs> um uh, no, I mean, when I talk to my friends in biology, I mean, I've asked them this, right? And my friends who've gone into medicine and things and what's that? Nutritive, they give you nutritive souls? <laughs> well, no, what, what they acknowledge is that all of that stuff that is in the textbooks after the definition of like life is metabolism or the ability is a description of what happens in metabolic processes. But if you actually ask them like, why do some things metabolize and other things don't metabolize? Metabolize. So we have like a fresh corpse versus a living body where you have, you know, I mean, we're made of the elements that exist everywhere in the universe, right? But the proteins and the, the element, the carbon, the water that's in us is metabolizing. And the carbon, the water, if we take all the same elements, put them in a bucket, even if we arrange them like a human body, it, there's no impetus from the inside of the thing to initiate these processes of metabolism. So, I mean, am I saying I'm a committed vitalist? Not necessarily. I'm just saying there's no argument against it that's valid in the history of philosophy that I know of because everyone just repeats Descartes. And even modern biologists that I know do see the point that there's a difference between describing the processes which is what they do, and this this issue of like why this big division between metabolizing and non-metabolizing. I mean, the fresh corpse is the best example. I still feel like that's. I mean, fresh corpse is still doing smelling stuff, so it's still doing the. I mean, how fresh are we it's talking? It's doing smelling stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's still there's it's there's still life processes going on in a fresh corpse, right? Are we talking no. about like when the corpse gets in? Is there's no more no, motion? No, I'm talking about right after death because there's no initiated holistic processes in the corpse. So you have inertia in the local organs, right? Yeah. Um, but that is not the same as that body being alive. The body being alive is I'm metabolizing for this whole organism, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. 
The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.